Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content, written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. This is one of our special episodes where we have a conversation with an author of a book we think you ought to be reading. This is definitely one of those cases. The book is Master of the Game. The author is Martin Indyk, who is one of America's leading diplomats, having served as ambassador to Israel, having served as a special envoy for the Israel-Palestine talks under the Obama administration. Hi, Martin. How are you? Hi, David. Nice to see you again, if only virtually. Well, it's a step in the in the right direction. Your book, which I think weighs in at 688 pages, is definitely, I, I think, a, a kind of a landmark of this kind of scholarship. It is, as somebody who's written a lot about foreign policy, this is the kind of thing that I eat up. And as our audience is a group of people who are, we gently call them foreign policy nerds. They are deeply interested in these issues. And I am absolutely certain that they will be interested in this book. Master of the Game, of course, refers to the skill with which uh, Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State was able to get leaders in the Middle East to sort of, I don't know if I would say bend to his will, but move in the direction that he wanted to see policy move. But I think where I'd like to begin with this before we get into the, the weeds of it is, why do you think this book is relevant right now? So it's particularly relevant, I think, because we're facing a Middle East in disarray, where chaos and, and disorder tends to be the dominant reality in so much of the region, failing states authoritarian regimes, sectarian conflict. Everybody's too familiar with it. And Kissinger's relevant because what Kissinger did in the Middle East back in the 1970s when he was Secretary of State was to create an order in the region 
which was more or less stable for about 30 years. And it was an American-dominated order that worked fairly well. And so, you know, there's something to learn from how he did that. And I, I do think, and I include myself in, in saying this, that those of us who came after Kissinger in Middle East policymaking knew not Kissinger. We didn't understand what the basic precepts of his approach were. And I, I'm including myself in that, um, even though I think I approached it in a fairly realist way, looking at the balance of power and so on. The way in which the United States dealt with the Middle East in a period after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when we became the dominant power in the region by default, was a way that Kissinger had always warned against and was concerned about. That is that American leaders would overreach because of our immense power, because of the sense of divine providence, because it was the Middle East. And we thought we could change this region, either by making it a peaceful domain or a democratic domain or both. What we ended up with was the opposite. And so I think that Kissinger's caution, his conservatism, his incremental approach, his skepticism about grandiose objectives are all things that have a real relevance today. And finally, it's that in a time of a return of geopolitics, when we have to, on the one hand, be concerned about the balance of power in Asia because of the rise of China, but can't afford to turn our backs on the Middle East, even though our interests are somewhat reduced, we have to find a way to maintain order there so we don't get distracted by the inevitable Middle East crises that drag us back in again as we try to focus on, on the real challenge that's coming from China in Asia. You know, it's an in interesting that you ended there because I, you know, I agree with the conclusion that you've got in the book that one of the things that set Kissinger apart and made him successful in the Middle East and to a degree to which he, he may not have been in some other places was this, what you describe as an incrementalist approach. But it wasn't entirely incrementalist. I mean, he was trying to set up a kind of balance of power within the region between the Egyptians and the Syrians and the Israelis. But he did seek one transformational outcome, which relates to your comment about China. And that is with regard to Russia. In other words, we were in the middle of the Cold War, and the main game was pushing the Soviet Union out of influence there. And I think one of the things that Kissinger may have recognized was that from the U.S. perspective, the Middle East was of secondary importance. And so what he wanted was good enough solutions so that he could get on and deal with the big issue. And I'm, I'm wondering if you agree with that analysis. I think that's basically true, but he had it in mind 
to sideline the Soviet Union from early on. I mean, there was this press conference that he gave in 1970, his first press conference. Nixon wouldn't allow him to give press conferences before that because of his German accent. So he gave this press conference, and in it, he expected it to all be about Vietnam. Instead, the first question was about the Middle East. And he said our objective in the Middle East is to expel the Soviet Union from there, which caused quite a stir. Now, as you can say, that's an example of a kind of transformational objective. He didn't really have an operational approach to achieving it. So when Sadat actually responded to this call two years later and kicked 20,000 Soviet military advisors out of Egypt, Kissinger didn't respond to it. He took the attitude of, you know, if you'd come come to me first, I might have given you something, but now I've got it for free, so I don't need to do anything. And he didn't. But along the way, he discovered, I don't think I know, he discovered that the Soviet position was actually quite weak in the region. It looked strong. The Soviet Union had these treaties of of friendship with Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and was the arms supplier to these three powers, regional powers. And yet, when Kissinger probed, or when he stood up to them, he found that they backed off every time. And I think he, he took a, the lesson he took away from that was they actually were playing a very weak hand, and he could sideline them. So I think his appetite for it grew as he discovered through his various probes that he could actually push them aside. So, you know, I mean, it's, the contrast is, is quite interesting. He starts off his efforts at making peace by going to Moscow to negotiate a ceasefire. And he then puts a lot of effort into convening a Geneva conference with the Soviet Union as the co-chair, giving them pride of place. But from that point on, he starts to push them aside. And it's partly because Sadat doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And then he discovers that Assad doesn't really want to have anything to do with them either. They all want the United States to be the broker of negotiations with Israel. They want Kissinger himself to do it. And so as a result of all of that, he ends up really treating the Soviets with complete disdain. He literally ate at Gromyko, the foreign minister's dinner in Damascus, as he concluded the Israel-Syria negotiations. So I I think it was partly learning on the job improvisation. One of the things I learned about Kissinger is we think that he's got it all planned out, clear strategy and implementation and so on. No, there was quite a bit of improvisation in the way that he operated. I read it and I was kind of thinking of it in the general sweep of history. One way to read it is in the context of past U.S. peace efforts in the Middle East. The other way is to read it in the context of the Cold War and the steps that were taken by the U.S. in the Cold War. And, you know, you talk about Kissinger and the Soviets. We also have the story of embracing or opening to China and trying to sort of counterbalance the 
Russians and in that regard, all of which has sort of led to today. And then you look at sort of the regional efforts that were undertaken to support that. And some of Kissinger's greatest failures, and, and some people would use even worse language than that, were how he managed the regional components of these things, in part because it seemed to me, reading your book, that he thought they were secondary. And that you know there was always this kind of focus on geopolitics at a grand scale, and that everybody was a pawn. And this, you know, this in in the context of your book, this even goes to the point of Israel. I know that you know Nixon thought Kissinger was too close to the Israelis because he was Jewish and and the family history that he had. But the reality is, it seemed like he would do what was in. U.S. interests with regard to the broader, grander geopolitical picture and everything else, whether it was dealing with Palestinians or or dealing with borders and so forth, was secondary. You know, he may have started out that way. And certainly in his first four years in the White House, he was preoccupied with a lot of other things, mainly in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and then the of course, there was Chile and Bangladesh and, and, of course, the opening to China and detente with the Soviet Union. All of that was in his first four years. The second four years, which is what I'm focused on in the book when he was Secretary of State, were dominated by his activities in the Middle East. He put a huge amount of effort into that. The most obvious example was that he spent 30 days on the road traveling between Damascus and Jerusalem, Cairo and, and Riyadh, 13 shuttle flights between Jerusalem and Damascus in those 30 days. That's not some sideshow. That's not some lesser effort. He really put a lot into it. And there are several, several explanations for this. Part of it is that he saw that he could succeed here. Coming off the Vietnam peace negotiations and the, you know, the whole collapse of what he had negotiated there and the withdrawal from Vietnam, those things were you know, fairly traumatic and uh, I would say very traumatic, and they were happening on his watch. He got a Nobel Peace Prize, for not for what he did in the Middle East, but for Vietnam. And so as that was coming apart, here he had an opportunity to be the peacemaker in a central region of the world, the Middle East is not some backwater. Its geostrategic importance is clear. And through his efforts, he was able to be very successful. He became even more of a celebrity as a result of those successes in the Middle East. And that just kind of boosted his reputation. And remember, David, this was happening at a time when the presidency was imploding. With Watergate. And Kissinger had become essentially the president for foreign policy because Nixon was out of it and Ford didn't know really what he was doing when he first came in when it came to foreign policy. So Kissinger was in complete charge. And yet he focused on the Middle East. So I don't think it's reasonable to say that this was really a, a lesser priority for him. I do think you're right that it started out that way. But he got caught up in it, just like every other 
American leader does. But the way that he got caught up in it was was Kissingerian. Was not like the other leaders. Yeah, no, that's true, and per, and perhaps I didn't articulate it properly and clearly. That you know is the core story of the book. I, I guess what I was getting at was that he was satisfied with deals in the Middle East that would stabilize the patient, and was not focusing on curing the patient. Right, but that's because he didn't believe it could be cured, not because he didn't think it was important. And I think this is the key insight I got from, not from his memoirs, not from anything he said in public, but rather the arguments that he would have with the Israelis, the Egyptians, the Syrians, in which they were prepared, particularly Sadat, but also Rabin, when he became prime minister in 1975, they were prepared for the big step. They were prepared for peace. They wanted to go for peace, and Kissinger didn't want to. And he didn't want to, not because he wasn't prepared to put the effort in, but because he feared the consequences of pursuing peace with too much eagerness and passion. He, you know, his own life experience with appeasement leading to the Second World War led him to be very suspicious of efforts to you know, achieve ends of conflict. His view of the world and the nature of states within it was one of inherent conflict between states pursuing their national interests. And peace was simply interregnums between wars. And the role of the statesman, in his view, was to set up a system that would ameliorate conflict not end it. And so that's, that was the view that he brought to the table. He didn't learn it there in the Middle East. He learned it from his study of post-Napoleonic Europe, which became his template. And it's there in his first book, in the title and the first page. The title of the book was A World Restored, Metternich, Castle Ray, and the Problems of Peace. And he explains in the first page the paradox of peace, that those who pursue it with too much passion can often end up achieving the opposite. That is to say, destabilizing the order and producing war instead of peace. And so it was that innate conservatism that led him to adopt a gradual incrementalist approach rather than what presidents and secretaries of state did after him, in which we all sought to end the conflict rather than ameliorate them. Yeah, well, it's an important insight. I think that that book was based on his doctoral dissertation, right? So it was kind Correct. of, you know, Henry, Henry from the beginning. Uh, when you mentioned this, I, uh, you, you, you mentioned Rabin, and just as a sidebar, it, it reminded me, of a time when I, I was talking to Henry, he told me a story that he, uh, Rabin had just been assassinated. And so he had supposed he was going to receive an award, I think, from some group, I think in Boston or someplace. And so Rabin couldn't go. So they called up Henry and they said, Would you go in Rabin's staff? 
And so Henry said, okay, I'll go. And so they got up there and the guy introduces Henry and he goes, and here is Henry Kissinger, famous secretary of state and so on and so forth. And a real friend of the Jews. And Henry was like, I've really come a long way, haven't I? You know, you know, I come from Europe and, you know, escaped the Nazis. And, um, and now I'm being described as a friend of the Jews. To me, that's a, you know, it's an interesting story because it places it in context. It's yeah. also an interesting story because it's the kind of story Henry would tell. And it's, he had that kind of charm and that ability to cajole people. And yet the complexity of Henry Kissinger and his record is so great that, you know, I've read a bunch of the interviews that you did with other people. It seems to hang over this book. You know, you know, you seem to say, I'm writing a book about a particular period and a particular diplomatic process to try to understand it. And they're like, but he's a war criminal. How could you even do this? And then you, you know, say you're a friend and they say, well, how can you be a friend with a man who is so evil? And um, clearly this is something you've grappled with on this. What's your explanation to the average reader who goes, I don't want to support, you know, an enterprise that seems to reflect well on Kissinger? Well, first of all, it does reflect well on Kissinger, notwithstanding the other things that oftentimes uh, don't reflect well on him. In the Middle East, he did good. He uh, ameliorated conflict. In other places, he, you know, is charged with exacerbating conflict. That wasn't the case in the Middle East. He can be criticized, and I do in the book show how he may well have missed an opportunity to head off the 1973 Yom Kippur War. It's kind of conjecture, but there's no doubt that Sadat sent his national security advisor and with a peace initiative that was quite far-reaching in February of 1973. And Kissinger at first was excited by it, but as soon as the Israelis came in and said, nah, forget about it, there's nothing new here, he dropped it. And that's on him. But once the war broke out, he was relentless in trying to ensure that there wouldn't be another state-to-state conflict in the Arab-Israeli arena. And he succeeded in that. He took Egypt out of the conflict and made a state-to-state Arab-Israeli conflict impossible after that. And he legitimized it by getting Syria to make a deal with Israel for the Golan Heights, which kept the Golan Heights quiet, more or less up until today. So he deserves credit for that. And in that context, he was not acting as a war criminal. He was acting as a very effective statesman, trying to pursue an effort to establish an order that would reduce the amount of conflict in the region. And when you compare it to what happened after him and the way in which American presidents dismantled the order that he had set up and created such incredible misery and havoc across the region, starting with Iraq, you've got to say that Kissinger did well. and. The other part of it is you use the word complexity. Yeah, he's a complex character, for sure. But I don't think that you can take away from him what he actually achieved in the Middle East. And I say that as somebody 
who tried in different ways. And although, you know, we also made some progress, uh, it all blew up in our faces. So, you know, I have a real appreciation of how wanting to do good can actually produce bad outcomes and how Kissinger produced a good outcome for the Middle East. I can't think of a better summation about the book and your approach to it to end on because it captures what is really excellent about the book. One is, of course, your extensive experience. You're not an academic who is approaching this from 35,000 feet. You are there doing the same things, dealing with these same issues. But I think also you can't make progress in a place like the Middle East unless you are very clear-eyed about what works and what doesn't work, about the flaws of people and what must be set aside in order to achieve your goals. And so if you can't appreciate what Kissinger did that worked, even when it stands in contrast to a number of other things he did in his career, you're not going to be able to make process or learn the lessons of this. And that's what this book does so well. He is a master of the game. You in this book are a master of the game of being able to tell a story like this in a way that brings it to light, but also I think is going to be extremely instructive for people who find themselves in the same business that he has been in and that you have been in. So Martin, I, it's great to see you again virtually. This book is a real tour de force, a huge achievement. I very much hope that the people who are following our podcast, many of whom have been following it for seven or, or eight years, because they are so devoted to these issues, should go out, get it, and read it. They will not be anything but enriched by it. So thank you, Martin. Thank Congratulations. you. That's very kind of you, David. Well, no, it's all true. Congratulations on the book. For those of you out there, again, Master of the Game by Martin Indyk. And if you want to know more about what we've got coming up, go to the dsrnetwork.com. I think our next big show is going to deal with the latest outbreak of uh, COVID with some experts that you know, and we will continue on and on. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, become a member, help support what we're doing and get Martin's book. Thank you very much. And we will see you again soon. Bye-bye.